Hello, and welcome to episode one of the Justice for Jennifer podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to discussing the details of Jennifer Wyant's disappearance. If you had the opportunity to listen to episode zero, you know that Jennifer disappeared from her residence in June of 1980. She hasn't been seen since. If you haven't listened to the episode, you should check it out. It's on most major podcast platforms, including Anchor, which has music carefully selected by your host, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and it's also on Spotify. We have a Facebook and a Twitter page with updates and interesting content. If you'll search for Justice for Jennifer Missing in Nashville, you can find both those pages. In episode zero, I asked for anyone that knew Jennifer to contact me, as my intention was to develop a timeline of her disappearance and help my listeners begin to understand her better as a person. I'm pleased to say that I was successful and I had the opportunity to speak with a friend of Jennifer's who knew her at the time of the disappearance. My plans are to discuss this in an upcoming episode. And until then, I'm still searching for a second picture of Jennifer. And I'm also hoping to connect with other friends that recall the disappearance. For this episode, I'm going to share audio from an interview that I recently conducted with J. Todd Matthews. Mr. Matthews is the Director of Case Management and Communications at NamUs. NamUs is the National Missing Unidentified Persons System, a national information clearinghouse and resource center for missing, unidentified, and unclaimed person cases across the United States. I've learned something new each time I've listened to the interview, and I think you will too. Mr. Matthews provided some really great and resourceful responses. So without further ado, enjoy, and I'll catch up with you after the interview. Can you tell us how and when NamUs was created, and what is its purpose and mission? NamUs, I think, has a multiple genesis. It was a, of a need, a need arise that there were so many missing and unidentified persons um, they would call it the silent mass disaster because there were so many people scattered out that it was sort of invisible to a lot of other people because I could, uh, you know, if you had a community, you could suffer a disaster like a tornado and you all suffered together. But inside my own home, my wife or one of my children could disappear and the rest of the world goes on, but it's the worst thing that could ever happen to me. And the same with the medical examiner's office. They were getting uh, unidentified human remains stacked up that were unclaimed, and it, it would go on for decades. So the need has been around for many, many, many years. The Internet helped. Uh, when the Internet came along and we were able to have shared databases that we could work together, around 2007 they developed the first part of the NamUs database for the unidentified decedents. I joined a working group, and uh, we developed the missing persons side of the system, and then we joined the two hives together and you have the functional NamUs that we have today. The purpose of is to join the missing and the unidentified uh, together. Uh, the system is somewhat able to do that partially automatically by making investigative suggestions, and the, uh, the rest of it is up to the investigator and even the public user. 
You alluded to missing persons as America's silent mass disaster, and this is also mentioned on the NamUs website. Can you give some insight into why this is a silent mass disaster, and also help us to learn and understand some important missing person statistics? There's no requirement to enter the missing or unidentified person in any specific database. That's one of the problems. It's been the actual handle on the statistics for a while. You will see them all across the board. You know, they're, they're uh, tabulated at the county level, maybe the city level, the state level, regional level. So I don't think there is a solid number that is a very accurate number. We have around between 14 and 15,000 missing and unidentified in our system. I think we have a great deal of the unidentified because they're, they're a known thing. They're in a medical examiner's office in a controlled environment. They're entered into the system. Uh, they're not required to enter them in our national database, which is designed for that. Uh, but missing can be reported at any level. Uh, a lot of times, the missing person is going to NCIC, the National Crime Information Center, which they should go in. Uh, but it's not as in-depth as NamUs is going to be. If I go missing this morning, I should be an NCIC this afternoon. Don't necessarily have to be a NamUs compared to the unidentified deceased at that point in time. Uh, so there's a point in time that you should go into NamUs. In Tennessee, I'm also a resident of Tennessee. I work remotely for the federal program. And we developed a law in Tennessee that 30 days missing and unidentified, after that, you go into NamUs. So it's a state law in Tennessee. We're one of maybe four states that does that. Uh, and I had an opportunity in Tennessee to help develop model legislation. So we know what NamUs can and can't do. So in Arkansas, Ohio, Kentucky say, I want to have a, a law that requires NamUs. Here's your model legislation. This is our Tennessee law. It works. We can do this. So hopefully they'll adopt our law, change the wording a little bit, and it's required. Until then, statistically, I can't give you an answer. Until everybody is required to use the same method, there is no answer, not really. Do you foresee a day when the methods and laws are in sync and everyone is using the same methodology? I'd like to see that. You know, there's a federal effort to, uh, to try to have a law. The same law that we're using in Tennessee, there was a federal effort to pass that law several years ago. I think one of the reasons, and it's just my opinion, that it didn't go through is because it was so broad that it, uh, it didn't accommodate each state. I think each state needs to get it and tweak it to, to benefit them to the best. You know, like we have coroners in Kentucky, but we don't in Tennessee now. We have regional forensic centers. So I think it has to be tailored. We tailored it so well in Tennessee, I get what I need for NamUs, and it was unanimously voted. No lawmaker voted against it. Everybody voted. Nobody voted against it. So that's a big difference between being introduced at a federal level and failing several times and tweaking it to the point that it's going to work. If we have to do this at a state-by-state -state basis, you know, I just need a good advocate in every state that lives in that state to say, hey, I'm going to contact my local representative and say that we need this. And then I have the tools to give them, like, well, here's what we did in Tennessee. Good luck. And when you need help, give me a call. You know, and we do that all the time. You know, I'm on the telephone with a lawmaker explaining exactly some of the things we're talking about here today. Uh, how big is the problem? Uh, what can we do about it? What can I do about it? And that's, that's why we, we have that discussion. If a person went missing, their family members could certainly use NamUs as services, but can you tell us what other groups and organizations besides families use NamUs? 
strong partnership with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They do utilize our database, and they have opportunity to see a child case that goes into our system. They have access to that information so that they can help either officially or just as an FYI. Uh, the Center for Missing Exploited Children work on a case if the local investigators invite them in uh, to work on a case in particular. We give that opportunity. We give the opportunity that, you know, here's what they can do for you. Um, and then we help case manage the cases. Um, you know, we're, so we're hands-on. We're in the system. We're helping them manage their cases. There are several nonprofits, and most of the nonprofits out there simply maintain a website. They'll, they'll put the posters on the website. Uh, they will take a tip, whether they should or shouldn't take the tip, and they'll pass it on to investigators. And some of those have been very helpful. Um, I think a lot of the public uh, do it in a way that maybe we shouldn't do, and that's the guessing game. Like, I think this person matches this person. Without a lot of reading, you know, they're looking at pictures and they're saying these two. And we get an incredible amount of those. Uh, and we're not saying don't ever do that, but read, you know, uh, do it with a little bit of education and make sure that you're suggesting something because some of these possible matches we get, we've seen them dozens and dozens of times. Uh, we can exclude these and name us so that we'll have a public list of, of John Joe, Doe. These people have been excluded, but we have to have proper biometrics before we do that. And, you know, we're one of the only organizations that can actually put that out there to say this is what we know. Uh, if you have a missing person, we might have no dental records for that person. And we're trying to compare it to a skull that we have x-rays of the teeth. Uh, we might have a missing person with a fingerprint uh, record, and then you have skeletal remains. So we can't always make that exclusion uh, on a list so that we can tell people this person's not that person. But if you're doing it strictly on physical appearance, you know, that's, that's not always going to be something that's going to work. What are some of the main issues and challenges for NamUs going forward? Well, in Tennessee, we found out with the state law, moving forward, I think we're going to have compliance with cases going into the system. So it's an awareness thing. It wasn't so much a resistance of law enforcement. It was an awareness issue. In the rural areas, uh, you know, the big cities, once they adopt a policy and a procedure, you know, they're going to use NamUs. And, you know, it's at no cost. You've already paid for it with your tax dollars. So it's a no-brainer when you have a budget. In some of the rural areas where it doesn't happen very often, they don't always know about names. So it might take time for us to hear about it and reach out to them, and then we have to explain who we are and why we are and what we can do for you. Um, you know, it's, it's a challenge to get out there and, and, and find that information. And now in Tennessee, we, moving forward, like I said, we're at a clear path, and it's not always an easy path, but at least we know what we have to do. It's the retro, it's the backlog. How many John and Jane does are out there that don't know about? in Tennessee. How many missing persons are not yet entered into NamUs? And, you know, the backlog reduction is going to be a big challenge in Tennessee. So once you pass that law, it's not an easy button. It's like, okay, now at least we're, we've set a clear course in front of us and staying on that course is a challenge. And then now we have to go back and figure out what we get and have behind us. So there's always a lot to do. There's, there's a lot of things that we have to consider. So I think, uh, I think getting the state law passed in every state is going to be critical. It's a long, long journey. It takes a long time. It took over a year in Tennessee to make that happen. And we've got 46 other states. So it, it's going to take a long time to get through this. In this field, it's really important to stay optimistic. And my podcast is dedicated to um, focusing on the positive aspect um, of this particular field and genre. 
And in that respect, um, my listeners and myself would like to know about some of the great successes that NamUs has had. Can you tell us about those? Wow, there have been so many success stories, and sometimes it's not the clear-cut story. So it's like we we did this, and then this person did that, and then this agency did this. So it's collaborative effort often uh, of a lot of people coming together and, and making the perfect storm and identifying somebody. A lot of our hits come from the DNA. You know, we also have a DNA at the University of North Texas Center for Human ID. The DNA lab's been there. NamUs was later... You know, they, they bid on NamUs in a grant, and they won the, uh, the program. So we have two very interesting programs at the University of North Texas, and uh, we work really well together. NamUs will facilitate the collection of DNA. So if we have a family member uh, that has a missing person, you know, we're going to want to collect family reference samples from relatives that are blood-related to the missing person. And those samples are compared to the unidentified deceased. You're going to see that work more in cases of cold cases, you know, a, you know, hoping a body's been found in some other state and hoping that we can find some type of familial connection to that through the family reference samples. So part of the challenge is, is uh, finding people, uh, missing persons, and, and seeing if we have DNA for them. And if we don't, connecting back to law enforcement to find out if there's family members that could snip a family reference sample of DNA. And, uh, you know, and that's, you know, and they know what they're doing it for. They're knowing, they're, they're submitting it for possible connection to an unidentified body, and as hard as that sounds, missing is worse than dating. It really is. To live out your life uh, not being able to close that loop, you know, and I've said this before, humans can accept death. You know, it's something that's going to happen to all of us. Uh, you don't want to see your children go before you if you go in the proper order, but even if you do have to have a death in a family, you know, I, I think you can actually go through the grieving process and put something behind you and uh, bury your loved ones where they need to be buried with other loved ones, and then you know you can go through the healing process. And with missing, you can't. You don't know if they're alive or dead. You don't know if they're suffering. Uh, you don't know if they were a victim of homicide. You have no idea, and you're not even able to process it. I've seen families uh, wait an entire life. I've seen families that never got their answer before they passed away themselves. It's just, it, it's really, that's why it's a silent mass disaster, because it is probably the worst thing that can happen to a family. But the next door neighbor, not so much. You know, you feel bad for the family, but it's uh, it's not going to affect your everyday life. Not like it will the family. If a person goes missing, how does the family begin involvement with NamUs's services and support? Well, we developed it for that reason. You know, the internet came along, and we had the opportunity for a more direct route. Often I get cases of missing persons that come from the family that have not been yet reported to local officials, or they felt like they didn't have an opportunity, or they didn't have who to reach out to, they went online. And we're able to walk them back and kind of connect them with law enforcement when that happens. You know, we don't want to say don't come to us, but the first step is local law enforcement. So if we get them first, we walk them back to the agency, find them the right contact, uh, help them with the process, here's what's going to happen next, and, you know, a lot of hand them, you know, because they're in a situation, often they have no idea, you know, I call it the land of the lost, once you fall into the land of the lost, you you don't know what to do, you know, and very few people are prepared to be here, you know, we're going to be asking you questions about height, weight, eye color, and you're not really in the mood to be asked those questions at the time, you're in a panic situation, so... And that's where NamUs is really beneficial because we are a public database so that people can see so much of the data 
quality control. I've had family members come back and break the hive before. Um, and remember, hey, we do have fingerprint records. You know, so there's an opportunity for ongoing case evolution, and, and, and you're able to share it with the public in a responsible way. Say you want to get a local news station to cover the story on the anniversary. It's been two years. Uh, you know, we're drawing from the same core data, so we make sure that we're all looking at the same information, so we all have the same idea. So from a quality control standpoint, it's really essential to have that out there. I have public users that will contact us and say, hey, this is spelled wrong. And as little as that may seem, it means something. You know, we're able to go back and, well done, you know, I'm, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, or I've had people that says, hey, I found additional photographs of that individual. Would you like them? I've had people to bring me news articles that I hadn't seen on an unidentified body. I paid as this hell. This news article had pictures of the clothing that you have verbally described, and we didn't have a photograph. So that's why it's important to have that public component. Uh, there's so many contributions, countless contributions the public can make. And you get the good with the bad. You, you have people that uh, maybe don't use it in a correct way, or they're trying to make matches that doesn't make any sense, and you still have to go through that. But... The good outweighs the bad. We're definitely getting a lot of information from public and, and tips that do make sense at times. You know, I'm not saying take a wild guess at it when we're asking the public for tips. We're saying, did you know this person? Could you possibly have worked with this person before? Does this person look familiar to you? That's what we're really asking, not not take a wild guess at it. You know, it's, it's not a guessing game. It's, it's, it's real, you know, these are often real homicides, and we have to be very careful with what we do. What are some of the tools that NamUs empowers family members with to use during their search? Well, the biggest tool, you know, we want to make sure we get a family reference sample. Uh, we want to make sure that they have the opportunity to get the dental records or tell us where they're at and we can get them. Um, you know, that's important, you know, because they don't usually volunteer the dental records. Uh, you know, the, the dentist will give them up when, when requested. We don't always know who to call, so we can't just cold call every dentist. My mother probably doesn't know every dentist that I've been to. You know, so it's going to be dependent on somebody closer in the family that, that knows where you went. Like, I need to know how many did they go to because we don't just need to know a chart. We don't need to just have a chart. We want radiographs. We want x-rays of the mouth with, you know, we call it morphology. They're looking at minute details in the tooth, not just words and letters on a piece of paper. They want to compare dental records, you know, the size and shape of the dental restoration, the filling. They, they're going to be comparing things that tiny. Uh, fingerprints, if anybody's ever taken a fingerprint of your child, sometimes they do it at local schools. I do it, we've done it here. And I tell them to take the card home, and you know, at some point in time, that card might be of value in a missing person's case. The family needs to focus on, and I know they're just wanting you to go out and find their person. It's not, not always that easy. You know, local law enforcement are probably taking care of that. In the meantime, we need to gather as much information as possible. They can put the posters on social media, depending on how comfortable the family is. We can look for media outlets to help them get a story out. You know, it's not unusual for a family that says, you know, it's been two years. Uh, I didn't want to talk before, but I'm ready. I'd like to see some information going out to draw attention to our case. I encourage that. You know, when the family's ready uh, to talk about it, it's important. You know, it's, and I try to keep this stay positive. Uh, it's easy to blame people for not being able to produce your missing person. It's not easy to do that. You get upset, you know, and I try to get the families to stay positive, use the tools of social media in a very positive way, you know, just be very, very careful. You're going to hear from people um, that are curious and maybe not really able to help you, so 
just got to know how to prepare for that. It's, it's very overwhelming for a family with missing persons. Very overwhelming. So we try our best to make sure that that's as easy a journey as possible and short. How is NamUs leveraging technology in its efforts to match the missing with the unidentified? One of the technologies we leveraged was the internet. So when the internet came along and we saw people forming black-minded communities with other problems, you know, people were forming communities before the communities and clubs and social groups had joined together were all really local. Well, I was talking to people in Australia, Canada, you know, I was talking to people from all over the world, so the opportunity to instantly communicate. You know, I tell her, I work from my home office in Tennessee. Most of our staff works in the region that they serve. We have a regional program specialist that actually live, we have nine regions in the United States that we serve. Each of those persons, they're essentially like a case manager assistant that helps local officials get their information and name us, process what's going on. You know, and they do that from the region that they're serving. So they're part of the actual community that they're serving across, you know, not necessarily each and every state. We do have one for one state, that's California. Uh, she is dedicated 100% to California, and she lives in California. So she's part of it. The technology of being able to work remotely, and I call it deployed, or people are deployed into the regions that they're in. Uh, it really doesn't matter exactly where I live. I stayed where I was, where I grew up, was in, in Tennessee, and um, I have all 50 states as the director of case management communications. So um, that's the biggest technology. We're able to work spread out. Kind of like the silent mass disaster, that problem is spread out over space and time, and that's kind of what we do with our staff. Our staff is out there in the community, they're working hard, and you're able to manage those people even from a distance. So that's some of the technology. The DNA technology is another. We're able to um, do so many things with the DNA over the past few years. It's improving. Um, it does take longer than some of the other methods of human identification, like fingerprints and uh, and dental records, but you know we don't always have those. We're seeing dental records more commonly digital now, as opposed to an actual hard copy, something you'd have to actually take a, a, a copy of and, and mail it or, or digitize it. Now we can contact the dentist and they'll email us the dental radiograph. So it's it's completely just a big electronic file now. Uh, we actually upload the dental records and the fingerprint records directly into NAMIS, so they're actually in the system. The DNA, of course, is in CODIS, but it is actually, we have the reference numbers in NAMIS, so we don't have a copy of their, their, their genetic profile, but we, we know where it's at for a time. But, you know, that would, that would not be something that could be uploaded into NAMIS. But in Kentucky, we had a case where a person was missing, and we had all of their information, their dental records, everything. A body was found, and literally a laptop was taken to the scene where a body was found, and they were identified right there based on dental radiographs. So how important is that? How, how often have we been able to do that? And it's critical to be able to do that more and more as more of these records going to the system. So unless your record is in there, you're not going to do that. You can't take the laptop out if the record's not there. That's why we encourage people, use the technology, get the information there, make it readily available at the fingertips of the people that are having to process these cases, and we can have it out in the field. You know, to make an ID on a, on a body, especially on a homicide, instantly on the scene, that's invaluable to an investigator. That saves a lot of time. It's, it's made right then and there, and they can start their, their job. So there's lots of technologies, and we're very excited. Uh, even the iPhone, you know, that, that being able, you know, you've got a mobile office in your hand. You know, that, that is key to what we do. 
we, we need all of this. Communications has so improved just over the past few years. Is there any insight that you could add to Jennifer Wyatt's case? She disappeared from Nashville in 1980, and this podcast is hoping to generate interest and momentum for her case. Okay, now we, we do have Jennifer Wyatt in our system, and she's been in there a long time. In fact, out of the nearly 15,000 cases that are in there, she's number 11. So she's one of the very first few cases that we put into the system. And actually, we've done this myself and a few volunteers before I officially worked for NamUs. It was uh, several years ago, more than 10 years ago, probably 2008, middle of 2008. We were entering cases into the trial system to actually start NamUs. I was part of the working group already, and I'd say I probably entered this case into the system back during the trial. Uh, Jennifer, of course, has been missing since 1980. That's a long, long time. You know, she's 21 years of age at the time. She would be 59 today if, uh, if she is alive and out there. My Justice for Jennifer podcast listeners could really benefit from the opportunity to get involved. Can you tell us about any public awareness days or events coming up later this year? Can you tell my listeners how they can find NamUs on the internet and also on social media such as Facebook or Twitter?
Not at all. Not every what you're saying just not lock down, but you're able to train cases and get updates on cases. If you get case training on a certain case you're interested in, if there's a change in that case, it's public knowledge, you get an email that lets you know that there's been a change. You know, in the media sometimes use that. I think they should use it more than they will. So that they can track cases for that and go there every day. You know, they'll get a notification for local cases uh, if there's been an update. So that's always very helpful. And, you know, you can see her Facebook page. It's UNTFSU. That's University of North Texas Forensic Services Unit. That's essentially our name is uh, page for Facebook. We can't have a great name as page as yet. It's a Department of Justice program. So uh, we're going to use our, our unit for that so that we can get the information out there. We're going to share this versus day with them, uh, anniversary dates of cases when they're 25, 50 years old. We feature cases. We will be doing cases for people if they want to feature a certain case. Uh, you know, we just try to keep rotating things and getting it out there. So that's the best place, I think, for somebody who wants to follow what's going on with things. Is there anything that you would like to tell our listeners regarding NamUs, Jennifer Wyatt, or anything related in general? Once again, that was J. Todd Matthews, the Director of Communications and Case Management at the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, otherwise known as NamUs. We thank Mr. Matthews so much for his time in agreeing to share his insight, and we recognize and appreciate his organization's efforts and the critical function that they provide within the missing community. I encourage you to find NamUs at www.namus.gov and on Facebook at UNT Forensic Services Unit. There's all kinds of beneficial information available in regards to missing persons, 
unidentified persons and current events. In fact, there's an article on there advocating for the state of Pennsylvania to partner with NamUs. So make sure you read that and do some research to see if your state has laws comparable to those discussed in the interview. That would be those modeled after the state of Tennessee. That's where I live, and that's where Jennifer lived. You heard Mr. Matthews mention that Jennifer is the 11th case entered into the NamUs missing persons database. And in fact, he probably entered her data into the system in 2008. Considering the deep involvement and dedicated work he does for the missing community, it's immensely cool that he was so generous with his time and expertise. What we can learn and share with you will help move the needle forward on Jennifer's case. My plan for the next episode is to talk to you soon about possibilities. The possibilities of what could have taken place at the Tanglewood Apartments, or perhaps another location. So until next time, be sure to check out the Justice for Jennifer Facebook and Twitter page for updates. I recently posted a video of Molly Tibbetts that really hit me right in the heart. I'm continuing to pray for her and her family as she's a daughter, sister, and all-around good young lady who does not deserve to have disappeared, as does no one. Until next time, be blessed and be your best. Thank you.